Good evening. You know how I love working with legends. Oh, my baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm honored to present the final award of the evening with a true show business legend. She's celebrating the 50th anniversary of Cabaret. Oscar award-winning actress, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> Throughout the night, <laughs> we've seen highlights of the 10 best nomi no, you know, nominated for Best Picture <laughs> awards. Now we're gonna show you something else, and then we're, we're going to tell you who the nominees who it is. are right now. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I know. Belfast. Coda. Don't look up. Drive my car. Dune. King Richard. Licorice Pizza. Nightmare Alley. The Power of the Dog. West Side Story. All right, Liza. Yes. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here, and especially with you. I'm your biggest fan. Are you excited to announce Best Picture? Oh, yeah. And oh, the yeah. Oscar goes to... Hello there, and welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And our destiny is to rewrite Oscar history, one gold man at a time. However, our destiny must wait, because today, for our season finale, we're not talking about just the little gold men. Today is the Cinematic Olympics of 2021. Spro, since this was your idea way back when, why don't you explain what we have in store? <laughs> God damn it. All right, well, it's like this. The Oscars, the Academy Awards in America, isn't the only game in the world. I think we all know this. As you, Lee, book us more and more interviews and professionals in the field, we're finding our international friends couldn't really care about the Academy Awards. I think this idea struck me during the Morgana O'Reilly interview. Bollywood in India is a huge market, as is China. Countries like Mexico are constantly in the category for best international film. So I started to do some research in these countries, looking into their award shows and their best pictures. And once you finally decided to start reading movies, starting with Parasite, I was like, I think Lee may be available to up his game a little bit, and we could start seeing what was actually the best film of 2021 awarded in 2022. As the audience knows, America elected its film. Okay, Coda. <laughs> Coda, Child of Deaf Adults, to be considered the best film of 2022 by awarding it Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The UK put up The Power of the Dog, the UK's Academy Awards being the... BAFTAs. BAFTAs, the British Academy Film and Television Awards, if you didn't know what that stood for. But if I were to say to you the Ariel Awards, the National Film Awards, the Cesar, the Goyas, the Golden Rooster, the Canadian Film Awards, you probably could only guess where a couple of those came from. And guess what? They all have their winners. 
I can guess where the Canadian Film Awards came from. I bet you would be surprised. Oh, <laughs> no, I don't think I would. <laughs> so no Oscar fun fact this time around, not this episode. We're going to tell you about each of the award shows, the countries, and the movies that won. And by the end of this show, we are going to tell our audience what we feel is the actual best film of 2022 in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of Spro and Lee Take on so as Lee and I watched everything, we rated them on this handy dandy Sherry spreadsheet we have between us. We'll briefly go over the bottom half and then explore the top half and tell you why you, the general audience, and the film snob audience alike should check out at least our top pick, if not the top three. Yeah? Sounds good. I'm right. We selected 12 countries for our first episode of this Satoa. <laughs> Spro and Lee take on the world. Some of the countries we selected were because of geography to the United States. Some were selected because of their comparable size movie industry to the United States. Some were selected because the Academy selected them. And some were because they were often touted for their cinematic appeal. One of the latters, unfortunately, neither Lee nor I could find, which was Lost Illusions by the French. One, due to the trailer, I really wanted to see. So I'm sad we didn't get to it. It's just not available right now. I mean, it's available if you know where to look, but it's not available with English subtitles, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I know. I was super excited when you sent me the link and you're like, I found it. And I was like, yes, because it's the only one that I like. I was super excited about. And then your next text was like, never mind. There's no subtitles. <laughs> well, it brings up an interesting point, which is just because of the differing markets and licensing and all that shit, that's not the only film on this list that you had to go to some lengths to procure. So it might behoove us if we do this again in the future, which I think would be fun to either do a, a random year in the past where international cinema was at the top of its game or start staggering it instead of doing the previous year, do two years before might make it easier to find some of these movies. It's just hard to find movies nowadays. I think it's funny too, because like when growing up in the 90s, there was the age old thing of like getting a satellite dish and being like 300 channels and nothing's on. And now it feels like there's like 40 different streaming services and you can't find the movie that you want. You know, like... Well, to be fair, we are looking for some obscure ones. But these are all Best Picture winners. I think there's like 92 countries that submitted a film for Best International Film to the Oscars and they chose like five. So there's like 92 films out there that like other countries are like, these are the best. There should be a streaming service of best international films. I have a list of demands. <laughs> so back to the episode. Other than the French, the countries selected for this year were the United States of America, England, China, India, Bhutan, Italy, Mexico, Canada, South Korea, Japan, Denmark, and Norway. And as I just listed them out, <laughs> we did a lot of work. Yeah. Not only did we do a lot of work, we did a pretty fast turnaround on this episode. We know some of our audience fancies themselves better cinephiles than us, perhaps even doctors of film. So if anyone wants to tell us what would have made a better list, we are all ears. This podcast and everything in life is an evolution. I would love to do an episode like this again. It seems like you're pretty hyped on it. So however, we can make a better country list. But this is the world battle royale we have set up and away we go. Good <laughs> 
let's get into what didn't crack our top films of the year, starting with Marakar, Lion of the Arabian Sea. This is India's contribution of Best Picture and is streaming now for free on Amazon Prime. Marakar, Lion of the Arabian Sea won India's National Film Award for Best Picture. Fun fact, National Film Award fun fact about the National Film Awards is that there are subcategories. Marakar won the Golden Lotus Award or the Swarna Kamal, which also comes with a certificate and a cash prize. The five categories of the Swarna Kamals are Best Feature Film, Best Direction, Best Debut of a Director, Best Children's Film, and my favorite, Best Popular Film Providing Wholesome Entertainment, which I don't even know like what that would be in America. Like, I feel like we would just combine Best Children's Film or Best Family Film. The word wholesome makes me think of family films like Babe or something. I was going to Babe too. The Silver Lotus Awards of the National Film Awards has 29 awards. Much like ours, they honor actors and screenwriters, but they also have a Best Child Actor Award, which I think is fun. They honor Best Original Screenplay and Best Adapted Screenplay, but they also have a third screenwriting award for Best Dialogue. That's after my own heart, India. And they award Best Stunt Choreographer. It's pretty sweet. The Goldens and Silvers aren't (laughs) the only awards though for the national film awards they also get into regional awards too i feel like the national film awards is a multi-day event but let's talk the movie real quick before we move on indian cinema to me is like ballet or opera you either like it or you don't i like it there's a certain art to it that you don't see really anywhere else but i think you don't so let me just say with maraca i liked it but even india's critics didn't so (laughs) i think the world would side with you on this one i have seen a smattering of indian films that I did appreciate, but I felt like this one was just derivative of Gladiator or Braveheart. I mean, it seems as though the titular man, a real-life hero of the Indian people, could have really made for a good movie, but unfortunately, this one's really corny, incredibly too long. If anybody watches the full film, it's not just Gladiator and Braveheart, even though those are two great comparisons. There's also Romeo and Juliet thrown in, Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, they took things from a lot of different movies movies and made it for this one. I like in India film how they just branch off into song every once in a while. I don't like that. <laughs> you don't like that? No, no. I don't know. It gives a certain like mood and feeling like when the characters fall in love, they just start bursting. Up. So that's the thing, <laughs> audience members. You're going to watch an Indian film. And really, if there's anything that I would recommend, I think it's still on Prime, but it's called The Three Idiots. That's a great one. And Lagan is a good one. But one sequence that I really liked in this movie is like literally about like an hour hour and 20 minutes in and it's a multi-ship pirate battle and I thought that was really well done so if you want to see anything of Marakar go check out like an hour and 20 minutes into the movie yeah the action was good but even that there's parts of the action where the lead character who doesn't look like the most nimblest of fellas is like <laughs> careening through the air ah there's a fight scene about two hours in where he's like doing neo matrix moves and I'm like it's like watching Ron Jeremy <laughs> Oh, God. Be a ninja. All right. So that one aside, India aside, we go to another I country, which is Italy. (laughs) 
The Hand of God. This is streaming on Netflix. Italy celebrates its films with the David D. Donatello Awards, named after Donatello's David, a symbolic statue of the Italian Renaissance. Their films are given out each year by the Academy del Cinema Italiano, the Academy of the Italian Cinema. There are 26 award categories as of 2021. They nominate people for Best Producer and Best New Director, whereas we don't. Those are the new awards. Lee, your thoughts on Hand of God? Um, after the nipple-filled and nebulous opening sequence was over, my first real reaction to this movie was, wow, this is so full of life. The visuals mixed with the variety of just joyful, ball-busting characters. I really wanted to be at that family picnic that they were having. It was a lot of fun. And in that same instance, I realized, okay, so this, this is going to be a memory piece, just like Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, or Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sure enough, writer-director Paulo Sorrentino says that it is loosely based upon growing up in Naples in the 1980s, but he did add the following, quote, when I write, I start believing my own lies to the point when I'm no longer able to distinguish between what is true and false. So, you know, that's weird, but cool. And I, I appreciate that. But I, I felt kind of disconnected from this film, and I'm not sure why. I guess the easy answer would be simply to invoke the cultural divide, and maybe the easy answer is right, but I lack the skill to express all my reservations with this film having only watched it once. Nevertheless, I will say that there were no fewer than three scenes that confused me, grossed me out, or both, and maybe that's what Sorrentino wanted to do. And I say, well done, but you splintered the movie into strange and disconnected vignettes. Anyway, Sorrentino makes this movie easy to love. It's absolutely beautiful to behold, even when he's being flashy, the framing, the symmetry, the crispness of each and every shot. I saw flashes of Wes Anderson, who's only one year older than Sorrentino, with not only the shots, but the production design as well. And his use of wide lenses, not just to disorient, but to scale his subjects in exaggerated proportion with just the wonder and beauty and splendor of Naples. Yeah, I think it's funny that I agree with everything you said, and that's why I ranked it where I did. I feel like almost every one of these films, maybe other than Marakar, we can recommend to our audience, and, and Hand of God is absolutely no exception. Like, I agree with you that it's beautiful. I think I started watching it first and texted you. I was like, it's like an angry My Big Fat Greek Wedding. The beginning, like, picnic scene with the family is very funny. You start wondering, like, wow, these are really awful people to each other. In the same instance, I was enjoying that. I was laying back and just letting the film overcome. I thought it was going to be more of an ensemble piece than it ends up becoming. They kind of hide the lead character in the beginning and then slowly let him emerge. I don't want to tell the audience how we rank these films, really, in case a filmmaker is listening, other than our favorite. But I played spoiler for this film, thinking it felt disconnected to me. For the longest time, I couldn't tell what I was tracking, or in layman's terms, what outcome I wanted the lead to achieve. Are we rooting for him to sleep with his aunt? Is this like the graduate? I mean, I probably would have rather had him sleep with his aunt than who he ends up sleeping with, which was probably one of the scenes that you're referencing. Oh, yes. <laughs> so while the film is beautiful, I thought the story structure needed tweaking. And then when he was talking to the filmmaker and being like, I want to create films and the filmmaker was giving his advice, I was like, so this is why we got the hand of God, right? And like we said, Hollywood loves Hollywood and Hollywood loves filmmaking. I'm pretty sure out of all these films, there's probably one that I would say deserved the Academy Award nomination more for international film, but it lost it to this one. I think it was the talk of filmmaking that got 
the hand of God nominated. Yeah, the, the Fellini and mm-hmm. uh, Zeffirelli discussions. And yeah, that conversation he has with that director just kind of comes out of nowhere where he's like, oh, I want to make films. It's like nothing that you have done up until now has suggested that you want to make films. Right. Nothing. Like he's not even like filming the family picnics or anything like that. So because usually like an American film, right, the kid would have a camera on him like at all times or something like that. And be or like, he'd talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the next film to talk about, Flea. This film comes from Denmark and is streaming right now on Hulu. Flea was the big winner at the 39th Roberts Awards, Denmark's annual film awards. I want to talk less about the awards and more about this historic film, which is hard to classify. It has won so many awards, the Wikipedia reads like a CBS receipt. And Flea was nominated and winning awards in three different categories. Best Feature, Best Animated, and Best Documentary. That's amazing. Like, that's that's groundbreaking. I think it's the only time in Oscar awards history that a film could be up for those three awards. It wasn't nominated for Best Feature, though, just Best Animated and Best Documentary. This brings us to two theoretical debates for today's episode. First, could Best Documentary be a Best Feature? Maybe I'm an asshole. I don't think so. I watched Flea, and I loved the documentary element to it, but I believe nonfiction and fiction are two separate genres, and Best Feature is Best Fiction. And yes, I get based on a true story as a thing, which money's all this, but artistic license is also a very real thing in every book. Film. So Denmark. What is boats? What is boats film? Based on a true story. Oh, I've never heard that before. Well, don't, don't just that, don't just cast that off. Like I know what the <laughs> fuck you're talking about. Well, I just invented it, and hopefully that catches on. <laughs> oh, this should be a category on all of our streaming services. <laughs> I believe so. So the fact Denmark hailed this as the best documentary in the 39th Roberts Awards, it takes it out of my book. I like the idea of keeping them separated, but if I can further muddy the waters, to me, this movie doesn't feel like a documentary, despite the fact that I know it's a true story. I just don't get that documentary feel from it. And it's maybe an it's, interview. It is, but maybe it's the animation that defies the genre conventions for me, but I would categorize this as animation or drama. Oh. Not to mention that the lead character's name, his name is a pseudonym and his appearance is never shown. So it further disconnects it from reality for me. And it just feels like an animated drama. I don't know. But Flee, <laughs> F-L-E-E, tells a refugee story um, and as we've said, it's a true story about a young man named Amin. Amin is likely not the man's real name, as I said, and his identity is further obscured by using animation to show his journey. Amin's flight from his native Afghanistan takes him to Russia. A failed escape attempt brings him back to Russia, but eventually he makes it out of the motherland to Ukraine and then to Denmark. Amin and his family's journey is a series of harrowing events, the most disturbing being when his sisters are smuggled out of Russia in a freight container on a cargo ship. I don't even want to imagine that trip. The animation does a very good job of expressing emotion without it's kind of like that Hitchcock way of like don't show the horror and let the audience feel it better like that whole train trip with the rushing of the black and white and then like the, I think it's the a breathing sound over it you're just like oh yeah. god I feel the claustrophobia yeah the film's worth a watch but to speak to the animation I was talking with a friend and colleague I have nothing to watch at Instagram and they brought up to me you know the animation's kind of choppy and it it really would have benefited from a higher frame rate and 
point, I do agree to a certain point because I watched this one for the second time for this episode. But I, I do feel it's kind of an aesthetic. It sort of gives you that feeling is, you know, these aren't smoothed out sequences. They're memories. So it's not all filled in. But the edges are defined and it's not shaded in. Totally agree. I mean, obviously, as two fans of little, I'm maybe not independent animation studios like Cartoon Saloon, who did The Secret of Kells, you know, not everything can be Sony making Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. It does feel like a little bit of style to this animation. It's a very confusing movie, but in the same instance of like how to define it, but in the same instance, that's part of its appeal is that it is a documentary. It is an animated. It's got some drama to it. So you could probably also categorize it as an LGBTQ. Absolutely. A refugee film. It definitely does something that I like, like it taught me a lot of let me experience a world different than my own. So, and there's a lot, I don't know if it's the fact that they shrouded the characters in mystery and whatnot. Maybe I was getting bumped because like I kept wondering like, well, does he have that beauty mark on his chin? Does he really look like this? I kept leaving the film to wonder what they were hiding from me. The second question I have that Flea brings up, should the Academy Awards reorder its award giving to better support these different kinds of filmmaking? So say like, keep Best Picture last as they always do, other than when they thought Chadwick Boseman was going to win the award and then gave it to Anthony Hopkins and put Best Actor last. But Best Picture almost always is last. Maybe last three awards of the year should be going in order best documentary feature, best animated feature be the second to last, and then best picture being the last one, giving these awards, giving these films more credence. Yeah, I mean, I know why they do it the way they do it, because, you know, they build up to these ones where people are going to get to see the faces and the names that they want to see. I mean, I would argue that best actor and best actress are, even though they're not last, are more important to people than best picture. But might be interesting if they were to just rename some of the awards, like, you know, the best pictures. So have best picture documentary, best picture animated, and then best picture, I don't... of America. But it might be too confusing. Yeah. I think they put the best animated feature a little early on in the show to get kids to watch. I think putting it at the end might inhibit kids from seeing their favorite (laughs) Pixar film of the year win. No kids are watching the Academy Awards. But then it gives the kids like, let me stay up. I never get to stay up for the end of, I never get to see the best animated feature. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. All right. The audience knows the next one. 25 years since our first run together. 1900 and nothing. It's a long time. What you doing? Getting mixed up with her. You are marvelous, Rose. We were married Sunday. I wonder what little lady made these. I did, sir. (laughs) Well, Brother Phil? Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man. Only another man. <laughs> A man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? Peter! 
not save her. Some place out here, Pete. Unless you get in the swing of things. The Power of the Dog by the UK, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, England. I couldn't figure out is that like America, United States of America, the United States? Like, which one is like the proper term to reference England? I got totally confused. The United Kingdom is like all its territories, right? Yes. Great Britain. I was like, I don't know what Great Britain is anymore. Me neither. Me neither. Okay, good. Because I was like, am I this much of an idiot? My world map above my head says United Kingdom. So we'll just go with that. The BAFTAs, Saltona's guest, Jeremy's self-professed favorite award show. The BAFTAs are England's film award show, which are more praised for its artistic merit and yet weirdly less scrutinized for its even worse track record for a lack of diversity. There's a lot of similarities between the BAFTAs and the Oscars, so we don't really have to get into them. Although Will Smith didn't slap anybody at the BAFTAs, when he won for King Richard. The Brits put up Power of the Dog. We talked about it once, twice, thrice last season. It was a surprise it didn't win for the Oscars, but by the time the Oscars came around, there was a backlash against its message against toxic masculinity by making it latent homophobia? I don't know. Look, I never thought Benedict Cumberbatch was a good casting here. He just didn't seem intimidating to me. You know, when people would be like, did you watch Power of the Dog? What's it like? And I'm like, it's, it's kind of like an updated Brokeback Mountain. But let's be really honest here. Benedict Cumberbatch is no Heath Ledger. He just doesn't seem intimidating to me. Between him and Cody Smith-McPhee, they're two cowboys who don't seem like they'd last long on a bucking bull. So when Coda won, I was like, oh, okay, nice. More people enjoyed that one. Power of the Dog was beautiful, but Coda made me feel good. Neither, let me say, felt like great movies. American and Britain have been... Uh, kind of shitting the bed recently. Yeah, I've watched this one twice now just because it's on Netflix and I can. And I can't seem to extract anything lasting. There's, I don't have any takeaways from Power of the Dog. I mean, you said it. It's beautiful. I think the acting is very good. But Cumberbatch is best when he's tormenting poor little Dunst and he's kind of doing it with that impish smile. When he loses his shit and gets angry, it just feels like an actor yelling. It felt like a bad American accent to me. Like It felt like he was always choosing how to say his words. I don't like him in this film. Rewatching it, I'm really there for Dunst, who I'm on the record on the show, I think, saying like, I wasn't a fan until interviews and Power of the Dog and everything like that. She is amazing in this film. She didn't win. This would have gone to Kirsten Dunst had it been another year. But I mean, Ariana was just amazing in West Side Story. And then Jesse Plemons, their storyline and their acting and their scenes together and their scenes playing off Benedict Cumberbatch, like they're the ones that I gravitate toward in the movie. And then this movie just goes, yeah, we're going to leave them behind. And I go, yes, I'm going to leave this movie behind. So (laughs) moving on to Coda, America's Darling, which is streaming now and probably forever on Apple TV+. Plus. So for the purposes of this episode, we're calling Coda America's best film of 2021. But the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is a mixture of Americans, Brits, and some miscellaneous international artists. I got to say, after watching all these other films, I'm sort of really embarrassed by what we Americans chose as the best film of the year. I I know I stood up for this movie less than a year ago, but it's sort of like marrying the first girl who goes to bed with you. (laughs) 
compared to the rest of the world, it, it feels like America chose poorly. I still liked it. I could definitely see myself watching it again. It's very sweet. It makes you want to call your parents and tell them you love them. And that Joni Mitchell song was such a revelation to me. I know I'd heard it before, but man, you put a song like that over just the right scene and you'll get me thinking it's the best song ever written for about a solid month. I just can't rank this movie very high stacked against a lot of these other movies. It's lousy with cliches, bad writing. Maybe that's the same thing in the end. It keeps the characters from being anything more than composites. It's funny that I feel like, I mean, this is why we did this episode. I feel like after the award show, we're like, oh, Coda won. Yay. Like that's one that I think is very recommendable to our audiences. And now comparatively, it's like, I don't know. I think people will like it. And I do like it. But comparatively to other countries' offerings, this feels so far away from an important film. It's like you said, it's almost embarrassing. Remember the little dog, big dog exercise? Okay, little dog. Do it! Come on! Push, 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 push! Medium dog! Big dog! You're embarrassed? Really? Everyone! Little dog, big dog! Come on! And! Pants! Pants! Push! Medium dog. <laughs> Big dog. <laughs> Engage your core. Blow it out. Push, 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 push. Push, 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 push. Engage your core. Push, 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 push. More, more. And sing. Trying to hold back this feeling for so long Now we're talking And if you feel like I feel, baby Come on, come on Well With that, I think it's safe to say that these films that we talk about next are the ones that truly impressed us. And the first of these is a film named Scarborough, which comes to us from Canada, but as of this recording, isn't streaming or available to rent anywhere. Bing, I need you to wake up, please. What's happening? It's not safe here anymore. So we're going to go somewhere where we're safe, okay? Find your dad. Come on, Laura, hurry up! Not those tape. Get your clothes. Sylvie, get mom's purse. We have to find Johnny's health card. Let's say something is wrong with Johnny. Maybe we can find the right supports for him. Can you really afford to add that to the current challenges that you're dealing with? You can stay with me until you find a place. I would want to live in this house because it's big. Get my own room. Okay, well, when we figure out which classroom she'll be in, I'll give you a call. We do have the Ontario Reads Literacy Center. It's just down the hall there. Hi, it's nice to meet you. I'm Ms. Hina. Oh, hi, good morning, guys. Are you joining us today? We have breakfast as well for everyone. Oh, oh my God. Oh, thank you. Always making a mess. Yeah. Did you have a friend on the bus? Sophie. Sophie, she's your good friend. 
What are you drawing? A ducky. <laughs> Why is your hair so oily? Just leave her alone. She's from the literary center. What if you put all those sounds together? Hug. Hug. Uh, there's a box of food still. I don't want your food box. I don't want you touching my kid. Community members are always in need. But for the sake of your own self-care, you need to keep personal lives out of the picture. Okay, no, 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 no. Don't touch him. It's okay, Marie. You're doing a great job. We can take the first step together. Do you love your eyes? I love you, Anak. I love you, Anak. There are two recent films named Scarborough. I watched the wrong one first. And <laughs> let me just say how happy I was to find out that we wouldn't have to talk about that. <laughs> when you texted me about it, I was at work surrounded by my little students. And your words were something like, why the fuck do we... <laughs> It's always fun to open up your text at work and be like, oh, sh- oh no. <laughs> Why the fuck do we have to watch this movie about teachers fucking their students? <laughs> I had to put the trailer in our document, but had not read the plot summary. But the trailer shows three very young kids. And I was like, Ew. but I screenshotted the Canadian Screen Awards. And I was like, what? it won Best Picture. I recognized my mistake as I was texting it to you. Yeah, I just I went to my library's website, typed in Scarborough, popped up and I'm like, oh, that must be it. I didn't watch the trailer for it. Yeah, Scarborough from 2018 is incendiary, to say the least. But as the old saying goes, out of the frying pan and into the fire, the wrong Scarborough made me uncomfortable, but the right Scarborough broke my heart. Scarborough from 2021 is the story of a few destitute Canadian families and the literacy program led by the saintly Miss Hina that brings them together. It's powerful, it's realistic, it's moving. But I imagine had it reached a wider audience in America, it would have been dismissed and ridiculed as socialist propaganda, anti-white, and a whole host of other things. Scarborough reminded me why educators are so valuable, why it's important for us to support them as they support our children. I latched on to Aliyah Kanani, the actress playing Miss Hina. She is wonderful as the teacher who just hangs on to hope despite overwhelming frustration and failure and the pain that comes with trying to assist a very proud and often rude community of parents and caregivers. Miss Hina does her best every day, resists cynicism, and is always present for the kids and their family. Yes, it's an idealized version of a teacher, but there's teachers like that out there. I know them. I've met them. I've been their student. And it's a pity that teachers like these aren't given the accolades that they deserve. I'm sure you would like to talk about how amazing all the child actors are in this film. Oh my God. Like, were they even acting? Like, I could have... The way this film is shot, it's almost like they just put everyone in their natural environment and work the camera around them. It really feels like a real school. When you're on the school bus, it feels like a real school bus. I'm going to show my hand a little bit and say I love so much about this film, from the acting to the camera work to the soft unfolding of the story to the way it shows a problem Canada and America, frankly, are suffering from. This, dear listeners, is what 
we could call an important film that more people need to see. And I wonder why America didn't put it on a pedestal for more people to reach out and watch. This is the film when we were talking about The Hand of God, where I was like, they got the nomination, I think, over Scarborough because they talked about filmmaking. This is a snub right here. Truthfully, I put Canada on our list because of its geography. I mean, I know there's a whole lot of hand-holding and bed-sharing when it comes to Hollywood and Vancouver with filming locations and such. But I think we're going to keep Canada on our list because of Scarborough. This film was great. A little bit on the awards. The Canadian Screen Awards are an evolution because Scarborough is the winner of only the 10th Best Motion Picture Award. So they youngins. They do have another award I want the Academy to adopt. Best Casting. And if America adopted this one, it should be looked at for more of the people who find the unknowns. Like, say, Blair Witch, I think, should have been up for Best Casting back in the day because those actors made us believe that shit was real. And like I said at the top, these actors made me feel like they weren't acting. Like it was almost documentary sound. And it just so happens, I looked it up, that in the 10th Canadian Screen Awards, Shasha Nakal and Rich Williamson won for Scarborough, which I absolutely agree with that award too. Yeah, this movie was terrific and heartbreaking and unsettling. I mean, we've all seen movies dealing with education and put in the environment. And like when we make them, it's usually dangerous minds, you know, freedom writers, something like that with a great soundtrack that gets you pumped up for the eventual celebration in the end. This is so subtle that it's like, no, 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 this is the shit that people are really experiencing. Freedom writers is a boats movie. But it's not done as well as Scarborough. Shall we go to Japan? Yes. I don't know why you said it like that, but yes. So, when it comes to Drive My Car, this movie was up for even Best Picture. I wouldn't say we shit on this movie back in our Oscars. Neither of us watched it. We were like, oh, it's three hours long. At that time, it was only in the theater, too. And I didn't want to go by myself. I was bugging my wife, and she was like, ugh. I was like, okay, fuck it. (laughs) Do you regret that decision now? It would have been difficult to sit there for all three hours. But once you're in the theater, you're not going anywhere. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't have left partway through. But it's a heavy movie. It's a heavy movie. And to take it all in in one sitting probably would have made it better but i don't know if i regret it or not it's super quiet and i guess i'm triggerable you asked me before i got married what could trigger emotions in me and i would say it had anything to do with a spouse getting sick or dying you asked me five months into my marriage and i guess you could say i would say infidelity which is kind of the driving get it force behind this movie of a man coming to terms with his unfaithful wife so the movie is bookended with him finding her being unfaithful and then crying about how he would just take her back if he could. That's not necessarily my viewpoint on things. I feel kind of jerky saying this, but I loved almost everything about this movie except for the main character's thoughts on his internal struggle. I don't mind that this won Best International Feature at the 2022 Academy Awards. I think now that I've watched it, I could stomach it even better than Coda or Power of the Dog. The dialogue is beautiful. The script is mesmerizing the way it works in the Uncle Vanya pieces, you know, like... Oh, agreed. The script is a beautiful little dance between original material, Chekhov's play, and even that short story that Otto is writing out loud. And I've never seen or read Uncle Vanya, but after seeing this movie, I feel I know it intimately. So it sounds like I like this one a lot more than you did, but I understand your misgivings. I guess it resonated with me because I like how amazingly private, resilient, and complicated the four leads of the film are. I mean, humans are fallible and insecure. We're haunted and elusive, and each one of us harbors a secret shame. 
game about something. And I appreciated how Drive My Car allowed the torturous regrets of its main characters to emerge organically, which I, I think when I look back on the film, it helps me both understand and empathize even more with these characters. I was really, really impressed by this movie. It sucked me in with its intrigue, it kept me engaged with its richness, and it coaxed out a multitude of emotions. If we can talk just for a second more about the script, as I watched Drive My Car, I considered the time and effort that must have gone into writing this film. Director Raisuke Hamaguchi who also co-wrote the screenplay, drew upon several short stories from Haruki Murakama's 2014 collection Men Without Women. Reportedly, the Uncle Vanya motif and story point were added by Hamaguchi for his film, and the countless ways in which lines from Uncle Vanya transition visually and have a bearing on Yusuke and Misaki's stories is unexampled. It's a long film, just about three hours, but I don't think there's much fat on it. I'm fairly certain it won't surprise you to be reminded that Koda took home the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, despite Drive My Car being on the table. And I am imagine it was because, as you've suggested before, Academy members aren't doing their duty and watching these movies. No, nor absolutely not reading the scripts. I will say the script has to be an amazing read. I'll probably search it out. I'm hoping it's in English, but it quite possibly could not be. You're probably right that there's not much fat on it, but once you're done with it, I kind of think in my head, like, if I were to go back, I think I could find some things that were unnecessary, some rehearsals I don't understand the point of in driving the story forward. I don't know. I can't think of any scenes, but I bet if you were to shave 10-15 minutes off, I, I might not notice it. Not that I would want to. Like you said, it is a very long film. There's a lot of scripts that I think America produces where you're like, that could definitely have used another pass to heighten some stakes, to bring some things to the forefront. This is not this. This obviously is a very meticulously worded document that they filmed. It's a great film. It's much better than Coda. This won Best Picture for the 45th Japan Academy Film Prize. The Japan Film Academy also has an award, like many of these other award shows, for Best Newcomer. Best Newcomer, is this something that we should adopt? Just in any capacity, Best Newcomer, or would it be Best Performance by a Newcomer, or Best Direction by a Newcomer? Some of the award shows, I think the National Film Awards in India, they do Best New Director. But you know Hollywood would just be like Best Actor, you know, Best right. uh, Performance. And it would be it would be the Zendayas, and the Timothy Chalamets, and the Tom Hollands. It would be some kid with a bunch of retweets and 3.2 million hashtags. <laughs> it could possibly help with the American audience. Like, suddenly you have a category where it is Zendaya versus Tom Holland versus a Skarsgård versus... And you know what? It would introduce me to some of these kids that, like, I feel like get famous and then I still don't know them, like, five years later. All right, so we're going to Mexico next. The Ariel Awards are Mexico's version of the Oscars, given annually by the Mexican Academy of Cinematographic Arts and Sciences. The statuette people receive of the awards is, like Oscar, a naked golden man standing looking up. But unlike Oscar, the Ariel is anatomically correct. Must feel weird against winner's pinkies when they're holding the award. Jesus. <laughs> I don't want that to be my only fact about the awards, so let me say they have eight acting categories to our for actor actress supporting in both and then child acting in both and finally minor role in both cameos i would say or like very mini school lines it's, it takes you back to the shakespearean quote of there are no small roles only small actors that is an award i think we on this show should discuss i could make a list of 50 performances that steal the movie give me one right off your head ted levine and shutter island as the warden okay 
All right, I like it. Season four, you want to do a best minor role? Uh, fuck yeah. All right, book it. Season four, everybody come back. We're going to do it. But as for the movie, the Mexican film identifying features, holy moly. So this film, I might say that Mercedes Hernandez got snubbed for a best actress nomination at this year's Academy Awards. She plays a mother who is looking for her son who has gone missing somewhere between Mexico and the United States. There are scenes where the camera doesn't move from her face and it's a close-up shot of her sitting with detectives and the detective is pretty much saying, there's hope, but not a lot. And Mercedes has a tear, loses a tear, gets the tears back, but barely moves as if she does, it will all fall apart. To me, it's one of the greatest performances of the year. Which makes this next statement kind of sad for me. The movie, for me, is kind of eh. While the story seems to want to be suspenseful, the script is very much, and this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. So I don't like that about this film. As I say this, though, by the time you get to the end, it tears out your fucking heart. So maybe my whole opinion on this film is full of shit. Well, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think the first 20 to 25 minutes before she sets out and says, well, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving until I find my son. I mean, there's one character that just disappears completely, yet it feels as if we're going to be given, you know, a B story with this person. That is textbook story structure when it comes to Hollywood filmmaking is the first act break is about 20 to 25 minutes in. And it is when the lead actor makes the choice to start their journey. Well, the first 20 minutes needed to be a little bit more clear about who the lead of the film was. Well, and I don't think you ever doubted the fact that she was going, you know, like the first act should be like, will or won't they? I never doubted that this mother was going to go looking for her son. You know, like it wasn't I didn't like doubt it dangerous. either, but that's because I read the summary <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> I can see why the film was so important to Mexican film critics and, frankly, why I think it should be considered important to American audiences, too. I mean, these are our global neighbors and many Mexicans become our actual neighbors. I mean, so much good could come from Americans seeing this movie in mass. And people might glean an understanding of the peril in which these folks put themselves just for a chance to live safely within the United States. I briefly worked at a facility that provided refugee kids from Central America with shelter, education, legal aid, and some really good food. But I'm here to tell you the first first-hand stories these kids told still haunt me. They were shot at, they were beaten, sexually assaulted, and they endured all of this, some of them multiple times, simply to make their home here in the States. And some of them got sent home when there were no sponsors to take them in. And the prospect of going back made some of these kids cry, pitch fits. It's crazy how little some Americans know about what's happening just below our southern border. I don't want to believe how ignorant probably Americans are to this plight and this journey and how heinous it is. Like they just think these families magically show up at the border and then cause us political controversies. The journey to the southern border is more dangerous than the southern border, which we are all fascinated or like fixated on. Like it's not the wall that the immigrants fear. It's the fact that they have to trust criminals in order to get them here. And it's funny too. I think I put Mexico on the list because of its geography and because, man, do some of the directors coming out of Mexico have given us some of the best work in the last 20 years. It's on HBO Max. Check it out. I think it's only an hour and a half. I think it's one yeah. of the shorter ones that we have on our list. Definitely is a mood film. That's a good way of putting it. All right. So then we go to South Korea, Escape from Mogadishu. So this film can be rented from Amazon Prime or streamed for free using Canopy. 
this is one of two action films on the list if you want to consider Marakar an action film. Anyway, this one tells the true story, and we'll come back to that, of the North and South Korean ambassadors stranded in Mogadishu in the early days of the Somali Rebellion of 1991. To call this a tense dramatization would be underselling it. I was riveted. So the film opens with some necessary historical context. At the time, South Korea had not yet been admitted into the United Nations. Because of the sheer number of votes which African countries could provide in that respect, South Korean ambassadors were lobbying African governments like Somalia for support. Concurrently, the Somali government, run by the corrupt Barre regime, had been living under the threat of a full-scale civil war for some time. The country felt perpetually on the brink of a rebellion that no one really believed would ever happen, or they were like, oh, you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Well, it happened, and it happened at the time that these Korean diplomats were in Somalia trying to lobby for their UN membership. And it trapped them in a horrendous battle for control over the city. And as the rebels sort of escalate their assaults on Somali government police, they also turned their ire towards foreign diplomats and the embassies in which they claimed sanctuary. Eventually, all the Korean diplomats, North and South, band together to divine a way for all of them to escape the violence and return home safely. So filmmaker Ryu Sung-Wan takes some liberties with the story, which if anyone's interested can be handily cleared up with a quick Google search. But the guy wanted to make an action film, so we have to forgive him for some of those changes. But suffice to say, the message of the film comes through loud and clear. In the words of Kang Shin-sung, one of the real-life South Korean ambassadors, it was a moment of life or death for all of us, and in such a moment, people forget about the ideological differences. But of course, once the life-threatening situation is in the rear view, all those ideological differences reassert their power over these people. Which is sad. This one touched me very deeply. It's an action movie with heart. You don't get a lot of those. It definitely speaks to my, my hope that there can be some kind of an, an accord between two groups that despise each other for, essentially, for tribalistic reasons. On a technical level, the film impressed that living hell out of me. The violence is depicted as utterly brutal. I mean, honestly, this film is not a super good look for Somalia, but the action scenes are thrilling. In fact, the final act of the film was reminiscent of George Miller's Fury Road, just as not as practically shot. A little bit more CGI here. I only noticed it being used to transition from shot to shot to make it appear as though all of this was in one take, but very well made. And we had to put South Korea on our list because of its absolute takeover of America's Netflix with shows like Squid Games and All of Us Are Dead. Not to mention K-pop like BTS and Korean cinema. The South Koreans are in this game. Their film awards are the Blue Dragon Awards, which sounds super fucking cool. <laughs> what else is interesting? The Blue Dragon Film Awards considers only blockbusters and popular movies of high artistic value released during the previous year. During the selection process, about 40 movies that have made it to the final list are screened to the public for free. After the screening of each selection, the award ceremony opens. So maybe the fact they only consider blockbusters and popular movies is why Escape from Mogadishu felt like an action popular movie and not necessarily one of high artistic merit like Drive My Car or Scarborough. To tell the truth, I was disappointed with this offering from South Korea, although looking at the examples of Squid Games, perhaps I shouldn't be. I should have probably predicted more of an action element. One thing I wanted to mention, or two things really, do you remember the CGI dog that barks at the North Koreans hiding in the doorway as they're trying to get into the South Korean embassy? Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> not a good looking dog. 
it really reminded me of the American Sniper's baby. Like, it's all I remembered for it, a lot. Like, it, obviously, I'm still talking about it. it I remember the CGI dog. And two, the way Africans were being depicted felt weird. They really focused on the heinous nature of Somalians. It takes me to one of my favorite war movies, which also dealt with Somalia, Black Hawk Down. Which also it, takes place in Mogadishu. Was it during the same thing? Pretty sure it was during the power grab that resulted following the fall of the Barre. So Black Hawk Down is a sequel to Escape from Mogadishu? I, I would say rather than a sequel, I would say chronologically it takes place at, and that the, end, at the end of the Civil War. Yeah, we already talked about Black Hawk Down. I think it was episode two of this season. But like the Americans, you know, refer to the Somalians in that movie as skinnies, which is a derogatory term. And in this, the way that the Somalians are shot also feels kind of derogatory. It's weird. Well, I mean, war is awful and rebellions are born of real anger. You put those two elements together and you're going to have a bad time. (laughs) Not to mention, there might be a film out there where it's told from the perspective of the rebels, of the Somali rebels who so- Write that down. I'm going to try and find that. Black Hawk Down and Escape from Mogadishu are told from outsiders' perspectives. I mean, it's brutal, but shit gets brutal. I mean, I did, did, like I said, it's a bad look for Somalia, but I mean, it's not a good time in their history. Right. I can't believe you didn't like this movie. I didn't say I didn't like it. I'm saying comparatively, this one felt like an action film. This one, kind of like Coda, I can recommend to a lot. Like, I feel like there's a wide audience for this film. Surprised Netflix didn't snatch it up to put it with its South Korean offerings. I just like, I like the idea that under the right circumstances, it doesn't matter where the fuck you're from. It doesn't matter what history came before, what bad blood is there. It's just about people helping people. Well, and it gave me some mince, like I felt like I was learning about the South Korea and North Korea relations. I forget what the specific line was, but like the rumors that they would say about each other, the falsities that they would bring up about the people, how the women interacted with each other when they finally did get together in like the embassy and their respective cultures mixing. That stuff was super intriguing to me. All right, let's go to Norway. This one was actually mentioned in our Morgana O'Reilly episode. When you asked her what was the last film to knock you on your ass, she was like, well, I don't think it knocked me on my ass, but The Worst Person in the World, which is streaming right now on Hulu. So about an hour into that movie, I turned to my wonderful woman of a wife and said, Spro's not going to dig this. Lo and behold, I flipped open the old laptop to find that it's your favorite. So I'm interested to know why, considering your reservations with Drive My Car. We're talking about the infidelity. I think probably because they were married in Drive My Car. I don't know. There seems a disconnect in Drive My Car between the infidelity and every interaction that he has with his wife is wonderful. It's beautiful. When he wakes her up accidentally. I mean, every interaction they have. I don't doubt that this woman absolutely loves him in Drive My Car. In this one, the infidelity made me more uncomfortable because because I sat there and watched as it developed. Like, I think there's three kinds of people in the world, right? There's the people that have never cheated, which kudos to you. There's the people that have <laughs> cheated. <laughs> there's the people that have cheated, felt horrible about it. And it's like, I did it once. I felt like an asshole, never going to do it again. And then there's the cheaters, the people that just don't give a fuck. Well, four people. There's Then there's the non-monogamous, you know, the polyamorous people that are very mm, comfortable with themselves. Great word. I'm person number two. I 
cheated once, felt like an asshole, we'll never do it again. Not my cup of tea. But we've all been there. Like we've all been in that relationship that just felt dead ended, that wasn't giving us the gratification. And some people end that relationship and some people grab on to the next branch before they let go of the last one. So when she was going through her stuff in the movie, I reflected back onto the relationship and I was like, oh yeah, that was kind of me. But I also appreciated the fact that it was from a woman's point of view. I have been cheated on multiple times. I have horrible taste in women. I gravitate toward the complexity of trying to keep a cheater engaged in the relationship. It gave me some insight into what they were experiencing. And I was like, oh, you know what? That kind of makes sense. Like I get where that could come from. So while drive my car triggered me, I think because as a child of divorced parents and infidelity there, once you get married, man, just stick to it. What are you searching for? You took vows, stay true to your word. That kind of infidelity triggers me. The infidelity of dating and trying to find your person, I guess I understand more. And with this film, I was like, this is teaching me a whole lot more about the other persons, what they were going through mentally. Yeah, I can see that. I just think it's it was because it was more personal. We sit there and we watch her make a conscious decision to crash a wedding and just keep going. What's cheating, what's not, and that whole conversation. And, and they really try not to. I appreciate that. <sighs> I think it's very disingenuous, <laughs> personally. Have you, I mean, I overshared. Have you ever cheated in a relationship before your wife? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Just want to level the playing field. But I, I did enjoy this movie. Renate Reinsva is terrific. And she's so changeable. Her facial features shift throughout the movie, depending on, um, not just on the color of her hair, but on the lighting, whether she has makeup on or not. At one moment, she looks like Dakota Johnson. And another moment, she looks like a dead ringer for Jewel. I saw flashes of Kira Knightley, Miranda Otto, Rose Byrne. I swear to God, I could go on too. But I think it really helped sell the passage of time in her character's journey. Did you notice that at all? That she looks like a thousand different women? I feel like I couldn't land on one specifically. There you go. I, but like, you you have to understand, like, when I was watching the movie, I was dissecting myself. See, and that's what I did with Drive My Car. When this movie was over, my wife, who's very good at coalescing things, especially stories, down into these little bite-sized nuggets of wisdom, she said, nobody knows what they want. And I thought that was profound. But then I, I realized, like, Julie and Ivan don't know what they want. Axel knows exactly what he wants. And I hesitate to say much more here because I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone interested. And lucky for you, Hulu is streaming this one as of today. I do encourage people to check it out. Yeah, I mean, this movie might be the best written movie I've seen since, like, Adaptation. Wow. Wow, that's 20 years ago? Seriously. I don't know. I think because I just watched it recently, so I'm kind of jazzed about it. I'll circle back to that some other time. But the reason why I like this movie so much is that I felt like it did a good job capturing humans. It definitely made me uncomfortable. And I think it made my wife uncomfortable as well. I mean, everybody's always, maybe not searching, but everybody's always wondering. You have thoughts that you don't act on. So to see it play out in such a realistic manner is, I guess I didn't embrace it like you did. I kind of more <laughs> recoiled a little bit from it because it was like, ugh, it's a little too real so it had that hint of like closer to me closer made me hate relationships a little bit more and was like Fuck, everybody's a cheater closer to me like felt like this is what could happen in a relationship where this more so felt and maybe i'm older now this felt more nostalgic to me this is kind of what people go through when they find their person and the ending to me was spot on like how it all shook out so like i wasn't disappointed in the ending where it would be very easy for me to be dis 
disappointed in a way like this film is and the way that it ends. Well, like Drive My Car, it does a very good job of developing three, you could argue four main characters, and it just gives you their story. One thing that I like about it is kind of the surreal aspects of it. Those of you that are familiar with the film, whether or not you're familiar with it, the picture that is most associated with the film is a picture of your lead actress, Renate Reinsve, running. And that poster always turned me off. I'm like, oh, great. Don't care. (laughs) She's running and she's smiling and it's worst person in the world. But that is a really cool scene. And it threw me for a second until I kind of realized, okay, I see what they're doing. I don't want to spoil it. I know. Have you yeah. watched Fleabag yet? No, I haven't. I oh, watched, you I watched the first it. episode and that's it. This feels like Generation Fleabag. Like this is just a woman being real and like her thoughts on everything. I love like the opening when she's like, I'm I'm smart and I'm good at books. And so I just decided to become a doctor because that's what you do. And then she's like, well, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a psychologist. And then they flash to her mom and her mom's like, yeah, you know, like as long as you're making money at it. And then she's like, Meh, I don't want to be a psychologist. I want to be a photographer. And then you flash back to your her mom. And without telling the joke, like the audience is there for the ride, right? I think the mom's like eating cheese or something. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, she's like cooking or something. And then she's like, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like from then I'm like yes I'm in it and like oh yeah I don't want to spoil it go watch this movie this one drive my car we're giving you pearls here and you can watch drive my car on HBO Max you could watch this one on Hulu they're easy to find we totally recommend it but we're not even done yet so there are four films that are locked in at the top of our list and this next one is third in our personal ranking system not the best film not what we will be nominating for the top of it but an important one nonetheless and it is Lunana a yak in the classroom This can be rented on Amazon. No, I feel like I streamed this for free. It's for free on Canopy. Yeah. No, it's on Netflix now. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I, pay- I paid $4.99 for that bitch. <laughs> Dude, it was 99 cents, and then I went back, and it had changed to 4.99. They like know that you searched it, and they're like, "Jack it up, jack it up." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, cool! This one's only 99 cents." Wrong, 4.99. Yep, I downloaded it on Netflix yesterday. So this film comes from the country of Bhutan, and to my great shame, I must admit the following: I was unaware that a country named Bhutan existed. And if there are any international listeners tuning in, of whom we have a few from time to time, I'm confident that that admission will validate some of their assumptions about Americans. But I've no rebuttal to offer. It's just plain weird that I didn't know Bhutan existed. Did you know Bhutan existed? I knew that ex- like I heard of it. I heard the name Bhutan, but like if you were like, where is it on the map? What do they do? What are they known for? If you ask me any questions about them, no, I have no idea. Maybe it was an Olympics that I was watching. I've heard Bhutan before, but knew nothing about it. I don't want to appear like I have any more intelligence than you do on the subject of Bhutan. It's okay if you want to. So Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom is filmmaker Powell Choining Dorji's first film. And I apologize, I more than likely just butchered the man's name. And it's also the first Bhutanese film to be nominated for an Academy Award. It's about a young man, Ugyen, who dreams of going to Australia and becoming a singer. But he's got to complete one more year of government-mandated service to his country. He's a teacher, but his heart's not in it. And after telling his supervisor at the ministry that very thing, that he's not cut out for being a teacher and he's not into it, he is rebuked and then saddled with a new posting for his final year in Lunana, a remote village in the Himalayas. Suffice to say, the kid is pissed. He's a city guy who loves his iPod and his headphones, and Lunana's only power source is 
solar, which is unreliable. The folks up there farm, they sing songs, and since paper is a precious commodity, use dried yak dung to start their fires. My only beef with this movie is its predictability. The story is typical. Obviously, Ugin comes around to see the splendor of his surroundings. He embraces the spirituality of a modest lifestyle and dedicates himself to being the best teacher Lunana's ever seen. But I think even if audiences know what's coming, we still enjoy seeing characters shift their priorities to more noble pursuits. I want to take you aside for a little bit, play a little music here so I don't spoil the ending of the film because I want to ask you about the predictability. Um, all right, so uh, we're back. We've agreed to disagree about the predictability of Lunana. If there was a Cinderella story to this episode, though, this is it. Not much to say about the Bhutanese National Film Awards. Can't find much about them. In 2017, they only had 21 films to choose from. 29 awards, 21 films. And if you watch the 2019 and 2020 awards on YouTube, you could tell even in, in the progression of quality from 2019 to 2020, it is a young film commission. But let's talk about the film Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom, shoestring budget, 300K. And I was like, what can I compare that to? And really, I couldn't find anything like post 80s. The two films that also had a $300,000 budget before the Reagan era, Halloween and Mad Max. Halloween looks great. I don't think Mad Max looks very good. Oh, no. And then adjusted for inflation, it's got to be in the millions. You know, so 300,000 and looking the way that it does. Impressive. It's a crew of 35 people filming in Lunana Valley, which is what appears in the movie. There's no electricity. The kids in the film had never even seen a camera before, let alone they know what acting was. The director had enough solar power to shoot the movie, but not enough to review his footage at the end of the day. Yeah, I read that the production of the film was carbon negative, meaning I'm not sure if I understand what it means. <laughs> I think it means it left no lasting negative environmental impact. Yeah. He couldn't review his dailies at the end of the day. Like that used to be like the film thing with real tangible film. You know, nowadays directors can film a scene and then go back to video town and, and watch it play back, see if they got their shot before moving on. This one, he just had to trust the fact that he got his shot and move on with the day and get everything that they could before their solar power ran out. The making of this film impresses the shit out of me. It can't be understated. I watched this movie. I loved it. You texted me after you watched you're like, I think you're really going to like Lunana. And that usually ruins it for me. Like, I'm usually like, well, fuck you. I'm not going to like it now. <laughs> 
the three main actors in this movie are all non-professionals and the rest are Lunana residents who have never seen a movie before. Dorji bent the script to adjust to all shortcomings, which is filmmaking at its finest, even renaming the character Penzam, the young actress's real name for her to be more comfortable in character. And damn it, if she isn't just the cutest little thing I've seen on film this year. Yeah, she's a little ray of sunshine. <laughs> How about the scene where they are learning to brush their teeth? That is them, the actors in character, actually really learning how to brush their teeth. When I tell you that I want these films that we talk about to be our reflection, to teach me something about the world, Lunana is that. Namge Dorji, the real-life school teacher whose experiences inspired parts of the script, decided to stay longer in Lunana, inspired by the film's international success. I don't know what happens at the end of Lunana, but I know what I want to happen. And so therefore, color me inspired by Lunana as well. And it's funny too, because I think it was made in 2019 and the Bhutanese government tried to submit it to the Academy Awards for Best International Feature. The Academy Awards, since it had been like 20 years since the Bhutan government tried to submit anything, stopped recognizing them. Because they had no submission committee or some shit. Yeah. So then the Bhutanese government had to step back reapply, reset up their membership into the Academy and then submit it again last year. And that is how this has become the first international nomination for the Bhutanese. There's a lot of shit that gets produced. There's a lot of people that have no business making films. And this guy, Pao Choining's Dorji, I think you give him the keys to the castle. This is an obvious filmmaker, a diamond in the rough that has been found because of this film. And I think you, I'm excited to see what he does next probably with way more than three hundred thousand dollars let's hope so so how do we do this then if those are the films that we are talking about for this episode how do we pick a winner we both have different favorites yours is drive by car and mine is the worst person in the world then there's the second place we both said number two was scarborough and both of our third place finishers was lunana a yak in the classroom do we just recommend all four i think we do recommend all four but i think according to the metric of our ranking system, I think the winner has to be has to be Scarborough. I'm completely fine with that. Hey Victor, looking great. Hey Sylvie. How you doing? I'm going off to the doctor. See you later. <laughs> what are you dressing up as this year for Halloween? I don't know. You don't know. Well, maybe you'll find it at the dollar store. Yep. Oh, it's okay. It's okay, it's okay. Hey little Sylvie. Mom said I can't talk to you because you have a puppy mill in your house. Well, you tell your mom at least I have a home. Okay, see ya. See ya. Canada, not even nominated for a Best International Feature Award, and yet we're saying it is the best film of 2022. You didn't comment on it when I said it, but don't you agree that if this movie were to be seen by large amounts of people in the United States, that it would be criticized? Oh, yeah. The only white character with any redeeming qualities whatsoever is the shy little girl. Every other white person in this is unfeeling or downright evil. Well, right. And characterized by tattoos. and But even like how they're portrayed, like he was a racist asshole, but he was almost a product of his environment as well as everything else. I almost teared up. I watched the film and then I watched the trailer again and almost teared up again because no, no, no. I watched the Canadian Screen Awards. The five films we honor tonight could not be more different in both setting and in the stories they tell, but each demonstrates that regardless of who you are, where you come from, or where you live, 
Our connection to each other is universal. Here are the nominees for Best Motion Picture, presented by CBC. Worlds collide, tensions swell, and destinies converge when a man's search for his lost love takes him from central Mexico to rural Quebec. Drunken birds. In the not-too-distant future, a Cree mother joins an underground band of vigilantes in a culturally diverse Toronto community, three children struggle to rise above a system designed to fail them. Scarborough. What if you put all those sounds together? Uh, hug. 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 Yes! Laura, you just read your first word. Congratulations. When a rebellious teen discovers... Three kids who have to persevere for a system that is designed to make them fail. And I was like, fuck it, that's just not the worst thing that we could possibly do as a society in the world is to design systems for children to fail and become, you know, bottom feeders. Well, Ms. Hina is an example of a young idealistic teacher that has her heart set on making the world a better place for all those kids, helping them them find themselves. And it's teachers like that, that because of the system designed, as you said, to keep them down, but it's also designed to keep people from wanting to teach in situations like that. The burnout that a teacher like that fights against every year is palpable. And there is a moment where a lot of these teachers that start out with grand notions of changing the world, they lose the fire. The fire dies from years and years of frustration and failure and backlash. She's not just just fighting low budget or parents not being engaged or what else have we seen from these type of movies? Just students that have been ignored or for various reasons within the household or within their friend dynamic, they're not engaged in their studies. She's also battling an administration that doesn't understand teaching <laughs> and like the educational field. That to me, when she's going back and forth with emails with an unseen figure until about two thirds into the movie, I am an educator. Like I have had my share of battles of this is what the kids need them being like, no, 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 this is the way that it worked 20 years ago. This is the way we're going to do it. And I'm like, everything evolves. Trust me on this one. We have mutual friends that are educators. You and I both know them as empathetic individuals when it comes to students and put the student first and have got shit on by their administration because they're not putting what the administration feels is the proper way for things first when really that is what this teacher is doing in this film. Whatever it takes to make the child succeed and the battles that takes place within and outside of the classroom for that to be a reality. The film does such a good job of making you connect with the students, connect with some of the parents, hate some of the other parents, hate the situation, understand the situation, and then in the end, kind of give you a hopeful message, I feel, for the future, but not necessarily like <laughs> your problems when it comes to like American History X. Racism is isn't solved at the no. end of this film. And the education system isn't solved at the end of this film. There's just the little victories. And it's captured so well on film in Scarborough. Well said. Okay. So Canada, here's your little victory. Spro ah, ah. <laughs> only take on the world episode one or the last episode of season three. Our award goes to Canada for its film Scarborough. I'm Shasha Nakai, producer on Scarborough. 
Making this film was a true act of community. Over 300 people poured their time, energy, and love into this film over the four years it took to make it. As the producer on the project, I feel so lucky to have had the chance to choose every single cast and crew member. The amount of talent on our team is immense, and I am so proud of us all. All right, took on the world, and that is it for season three. Not quite yet. Ooh, there's something else, an encore? Yes, we have, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. That kind of makes us sound like rock stars. (laughs) We do, we have an encore, and it is you and I speaking with two actors from the film Scarborough that we just awarded Best Picture in the World. Connor M. Casey, who plays Corey, and Aliyah Kanani, who plays Miss Hina. Oh my God, that's gonna be awesome. Yeah. So looking forward to it. Me too. A little gun shy, a little gun shy. We're still a little podcast. So we it's are. just fun that like these like these people that we celebrate on the screen are going to come talk to us. It Aww. is gracious of them to to come on because uh, we're not paying them anything to do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever we can do for Scarborough so more people go out and see it and demand it. Totally. All right. So I guess I'll see you in two weeks. I'll be there. Mate, had you to sing. So Chegou 